Okay, we're going to begin. Um, this story is called The Last Boat Goes to Dundee. It's from It's a Rum Life, Book 2, Boston, 1960 to 1970. The story is actually from 1969. Now, just to make things a bit different, this is quite a long story. So it's in two halves. Uh, this is the first half. This is a tale from 1969. Before inflation, when petrol was still four gallons for a pound and a decent average wage was £12 a week. Very few people demanded every possible labour-saving gadget in their home and television was still restricted to two channels. Initially, I'm going to give you some background to the story. I had for some time been building up my boat transport business while at the same time, same time putting in my hours for Firestone, which was by no means the same company I had joined full of enthusiasm only four years before. American management had taken control in the UK and was gradually destroying over 30 years of courageous effort and development by the original English management teams. My boss Fred had been superseded by a bombastic toilet paper salesman who made his regional office in Nottingham. One of his first and perhaps worst decisions was to inform Fred that he would no longer have further contact with Fawcett and Thorne, senior management. Oh, the account is much too important for a mere district manager to handle, he was told quite bluntly. Your role will, will be to have contact with local managers only and your salesman, yours truly included, will have no contact with the company at all. Thus came the epistle from on high. The fact that Fred had single-handedly developed the Fawcett and Thorne account from the very day they opened their doors in the late 1950s to this time at the end of the 1960s when they had over 14 depots and bought Firestone as their number one product for resale to their clients made what non what made not one tiny shred of difference to the new management authority. Thus came drastic changes from both directions. Our sales team in Lincolnshire were under daily pressure to achieve stupid and unrealistic targets, while from principle, our principal client was frothing at the mouth at losing our invaluable backup in the field. Consequently, the heavy-handed demands made on Fawcett and Thorne from increased, for increased turnover by our new those-who-must-be-obeyed management resulted in a total boycott of Firestone products by Fawcett and Thorne and the further demand that Firestone collect all existing stock from all their depots and credit their account with this value. Fred and I did not get our bonuses that year for the first time ever. To illustrate the background a little, uh, there were in the UK at this time four major manufacturers of tyres who virtually controlled the industry. They were Michelin, Goodyear, Firestone and Dunlop. 
following these major brands were lesser known names, still manufactured by the major companies but sold at greater discounts. These were India by Dunlop, uh, British Bagoon by Michelin, Kelly by Goodyear and Dayton by Firestone. This era is long before any tyres were manufactured in the Middle or Far East or even India. There were some continental companies beginning to make inroads into the UK. These included Continental and Uniroyal. Uniroyal were to build their UK tyre plant just outside Edinburgh shortly after Firestone, UK, became virtually bankrupt and closed down their whole 30-year-plus UK manufacturing concern, all due to inept management. Back to Lincolnshire. Four months have passed, and Fred has once again been given control of the Fawcett and Thorne account. Harry Thorne and his managers have persuaded Firestone that their American-led management methods would just not do in Lincolnshire. This means that the salesmen are back in again and giving full backup to the Fawcett and Thorne sales team. Fawcett and Thorne backed by Fred's unstinting support and superb service from Lincoln Firestone Depot had developed into an account worth a minimum of £9 million per annum. In the 1960s, this was huge. Consequently, Fawcett and Thorne were the, on the top rate of discount and rebates. Other independent tyre retailers in the county allied themselves with one of the other big brands, thereby earning their own high rate of discounts. Only by buying large quantities from one manufacturer could an independent dealer make sufficient profit. If he bought little bits here and there, he could never make a realistic and competitive discount base. The only way we at Firestone could get a foot in the door with any other independent dealer was with special discount promotions on parcels of tyres, for example 100 tractor-front tyres, any sizes, for an extra 10% discount. These deals cropped up from time to time to clear stock or boost sales in quieter periods. The lean times of no bonus and difficult demanding management had led me and many of the Firestone staff to look elsewhere for their future. We could see the company gradually falling apart and certainly not capable of employing us for much longer. ECYB It was during this time that ECYB reared its head. Boats were our family hobby and the thing I knew most about next to tyres. I had circulated dozens of boatyards and boat builders, including importers of boats from overseas, asking for work transporting their products. Eventually, we gained a contract with a company importing Magyar yachts from Hungary. Our job would be to distribute their boats to their UK retail agents. This involved regular deliveries from Hull Docks to Windermere, Brightling Sea in Essex and Emsworth in Hampshire. I was in Windermere at, one st- Windermere at one stage when Fred caught me out and asked me to call and see him for a cosy chat. Firestone was still paying me well and the boat delivery would not support me as yet. Between us we decided that I should find someone else to make the deliveries for me while I still put in my Firestone hours. 
part of my job was to promote original equipment sales and I'd been making regular calls on a small engineering company near Sleaford who manufactured mini excavators, the kind of thing you could tow behind a Land Rover. My intention was to persuade them to buy our product direct um, for original equipment on their machines. John, we should call him, the production manager, had been taken ill with stress. He was off work and looking for a fill-in position until back to full health. Something to do with his time and take his mind off the pressure of making mini excavators. I persuaded him to drive URP 503, our short wheelbase Series 2 Land Rover, and continue with deliveries of Magyar Yachts. The first delivery to Windermere you can listen to in the story filling up with a Magyar 9. Hull docks were a pain. The old dockers regime existed where ten men did the work of two and anything took forever. Unfortunately, John's disposition was not conducive to humouring recalcitrant dock workers and it was not long before he had an almighty bust up with the docks and their outmoded attitude to a decent day's work. The resulting explosion could be heard for miles and we were blacked from entering the docks. End of contract, end of John, end of boat deliveries for the present. The extra-large flatbed trailer made especially by Bev Scott of Billinghay was sold to the dealers at Windermere and delivered with the last Magyar we took there. This trailer had to compensate for the fact that the trailer with load was bigger and heavier than the towing vehicle, something very much frowned upon by the traffic commissioners today. To achieve this, it had 750 by 16 light truck axles and tyres with four-wheel braking. These wheels and axles were larger than the standard Land Rover equipment. As Land Rovers do not have air brakes, then the normal trailer overrun system was used, but utilising hydraulics instead of the normal cable or rod operated brakes. Just as soon as I pressed the brake pedal in the Land Rover, the heavy trailer ran on and operated the hydraulic brakes on all four trailer wheels, bringing everything to a rapid halt. The effect was similar to the snap of a parachute, as it just opens, and very effective. Our second trailer was for moving standard-type boats. It had a centre set of rollers with split cantilever load deck and could pick up a boat from the flat ground if necessary. This one we sold to a gentleman from Dundee in Scotland with our last boat delivery booking. By now the Land Rover had gone and I was travelling to Scotland towing the smallish 19-foot sailing boat with my stalwart Rover 90 saloon. Once again I must explain, as there is now a more modern range of Rover cars, they were not the same. The original Rovers were large, elegant, statuesque, luxury saloon cars with solid chassis and strong bodywork with leather and solid wood trim interior. They used bomb-proof six-cylinder engines and were excellent towing vehicles. Loading the boat. My 
trailer client from Dundee had purchased this sailing boat from a local owner who moored it on a tidal berth at Surfleet, not far out of Spalding, on the River Welland, and about 16 miles south of Boston. The boat needed a crane lift from the river, and we arranged this to take place at Fosdyke Bridge on the A17 road to Norfolk. It was here that the boat owner could bring his boat downriver and get alongside a quay. The crane was booked from Belton's of Boston, the only local crane hire company, for 5pm to make the best of the tide at Fosdyke and would allow us plenty of time to undertake the lift before the tide dropped too low to become dangerous. We were all ready. 5pm arrived. The boat was there waiting close to the quay and breasting the current as the tide began to fall and no crane. There was no reply when we telephoned Belton's office either. Thinking it was on its way, we gave it another half an hour. The tide continued to fall and we began to think of alternatives. As soon as the tide fell beyond a certain level, the boat could not get back to its home berth and would be at the mercy of the river and its obstructions. The quay we had chosen was used by the local drainage authority as their loading and unloading point for barges filled with rock that they used to protect the banks from tidal erosion. Just to one side of the quay was an old tracked Ruston Bucyrus dragline excavator with a bucket for moving the stone. We had lifting straps with us to use with the crane that should have arrived and the dragline operator just happened to live in the house on the quayside. He took some persuading, but after another hour of waiting he could see how precarious the situation had become. It was the day before the bank holiday weekend. I was in shorts and holiday-type gear with nothing but a five-pound note in my pocket. The dragline man was wonderful. He edged the precarious old machine to the edge of the quay after asking us how much we thought the little boat weighed. Being fiberglass, we estimated not a great deal, perhaps 1,500 weight, one ton maximum. The, sing- the slings were slipped around the hole fore and aft with rope coupling them together to avoid slippage. By now the boat was over 30 feet down below us. The rocks were beginning to show just below the falling water and the ex-owner becoming more anxious by the moment. Goodness knows what the new owner in Dundee would have thought had he known the half of what was going on with his new pride and joy. The dragline man explained that he had removed the bucket attachment for convenience and to remove excess weight from the jib. The machine was not designed for lifting objects and had only a very limited working capacity. All this was strictly illegal and could not possibly have happened had any of the members of his staff been anywhere about. He shuffled the machine on its ancient tracks to the very edge of the quay. We have to lift in one straight quick pull, he explained. I do not know how the machine will behave. We're right at the edge of the quay, so the jib is almost vertical, giving us the best chance, he continued. When he turned the jib out of the river, 
it would have to extend to reach the boat. That would be the dangerous bit. As soon as I take the strain, he said, the boat has to come up quickly and allow me to swing the jib over the trailer in one quick movement. If anything were to go wrong, I thought, the drag line would topple over on its tracks and career crazily downwards into the river and crush the boat beneath. His instructions were clear and the ex-boat owner secured the lifting hook onto the straps. He had to stay aboard for the lift, as by now the water was so low he had no chance of gaining access to the bank. The dragline engine revved and clattered and we began. Immediately the jib took the strain of the boat, its excess weight warning bell clanged loudly enough to wake the dead. It was too much. But we'd begun, and the wonderful driver continued to pull hard on his lifting levers. The boat sprang from the water on the end of a taut cable, and the tall jib seemed to wobble in all directions. At least the dragline track stayed firmly on the ground, and within seconds the boat was up and swung round over the trailer. The bell clamouring in our ears finally stopped, with the jib being more erect and poised with its dripping cargo swinging gently, ready to drop the boat down onto the trailer deck. This we could do at a more leisurely pace to ensure the weight distribution was just right for our long journey north. All I could offer the dragline driver was a drink, but together with our heartfelt thanks. I'm sure he enthralled his friends and neighbours for weeks to come with this tale of the unexpected. He certainly saved our bacon. End of part one. We hope you've enjoyed this. It's uh, the first part of The Last Boat to Dundee, brought to you by Cracker Books, written and read by Keith Sanders. More stories to read on Keith Sanders is thestoryman.wordpress.com. Lots more audio stories to listen to on this Buzzsprout site. Uh, There are lots of free videos to watch, and I mean lots, on Keith Sanders, the short story man on YouTube. Um, There's a shop. Now, this is the important bit. All our stories are compiled in book form. They're all downloadable. They're not expensive. And do have a look on the site Richard Keith Sanders dot cells S-E-L-Z dot com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to pick up the second part of this story. <laughs>